Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I'm joined as usual by Nathan Oblak, Dr. Joe Boot, and we have a special guest today. Uh, a lot of our listeners are probably going to be familiar with this name. We have Dr. James White with us from Alpha and Omega Ministries and Apologia Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. White, welcome. It is great to be with you guys. We're delighted that uh, you can be here. So, like I said, James White director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, uh, which is a Christian apologetics organization based in Phoenix, Arizona. He's the author of more than 20 books. He's been a professor of Greek, of systematic theology, and church history, as well as an accomplished debater. Dr. White's a pastor and elder of Apologia Church in Arizona. He has been married to Kelly for over 37 years. He's got two children and four grandchildren. And he's our special guest today. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Great to have you with us, Dr. White. And he's a speaker at our H. Eben Runner Academy coming up this summer. That's right. Yep. By hook or by crook, we'll get him there. <laughs> assuming, uh, assuming that I that that's even possible. Let's exactly. Just, let's just be honest. Um, I I wrote this morning, and I'm like, um, are we going to be able to travel? Yeah. Uh, in in the summer is. Are the borders going to be open? Uh, will vaccines be required? There's just, we are living in a day where trying to think about the future is um, incredibly challenging, mm. especially if you're, you know, I'm the head of Alchemy Ministries, I'm involved with Apologia, and we're just sort of, aren't we all just used to assuming continuity in the future? Mm, yeah. And the ability mm-hmm. to travel and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Man, that is. That is just not a possible uh, thing to do anymore. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm wearing the super bright Fuji uh, <laughs> sweater today just for Joe because uh, Joe's, of course, a transplanted Brit, and we all know that Brits are really into spicy foods and colorful things. Well, not actually uh, at all, but I wore this thing. Well, in one of them is. <laughs> at a super conservative uh, church in London. And the looks that I got were just so classic. I had to do it again just to see if I'd get the same thing out of Joe. Uh, because they were wondering, where did this guy come from? And uh, But the point being, I loved traveling to London. I've been to London. I've run all over London. And I just, I'm not 100% certain I'll ever get to see it again. Mm-hmm. I'll just be perfectly honest with you. It, it, that is how much things have changed. And mm-hmm. I sort of think that's what we're talking about today is... Mm-hmm. Um, future and how we uh how we approach it in a biblical fashion well we That's love right. the uh, we love the cardigan uh, dr white and uh even if we only get to get you by zoom at the uh, at the academy we'll 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 look forward to to, to having you and we'll just have to hope and pray that uh, mm-hmm. as you say these uh, the lord delivers us in the midst of these very uncertain days mm-hmm. yeah we'll charter a cargo plane for you if we have to <laughs> <laughs> So we're here to talk today about the freedom of the church. And Dr. White, I wonder if you could kick us off by just uh, saying a little bit about historically, theologically, scripturally, uh, what's the unique and the essential role of the church in society? And what does freedom have to do with that? I am finding 
and I'm very thankful that the first classes I taught on graduating seminary were church history. That has always been a passion of mine. I've sadly found that most, uh, especially conservative evangelical Christians, know very little about church history and have very little passion about church history, which strikes me as an odd thing. If we really take seriously Jesus' promise to build the church, you would think we would want to see how he has fulfilled that promise down through the centuries. But we are very focused upon our own current situation and the modern situation. And most evangelicals in the United States, church history goes back to Billy Graham, and that's about as far back as it goes. And so there's there's not a lot of connection to the historic church. And, and even those who have studied it sort of have the idea it was just a big mess anyways. Um, I was raised as a, as a very strong, independent, fundamentalist Baptist uh, in that, that genre. And from our perspective, other than the Baptists who have always been there, but history didn't know about them, uh, <laughs> that, that whole theory, um, we didn't really concern ourselves much about, for example, paedo-baptists in history because, well, you know, we know they're not really a part of the true church anyway. So we had a very, very narrow view of what what Christ was doing. That's all background to the fact that, obviously, there have been all sorts of different understandings and practices as to the relationship of church and state down through the history of, of the church. Um. I hope you don't mind if I tell you a story, but uh, when I was, when, just before the 500th anniversary, and by the way, interviewing me, if you want to get much said, you've got to jump in, because <laughs> I tend to just simply run off, okay? That's just... That's, they're they're used to my monologues. We, we know... Where yeah. You're the only one talking anyway, so you're not expecting that much of a conversation. We know somebody um, like that. We're okay. <laughs> if, I, if I go the wrong direction, let me know, but I was in Germany... Um, and we, we went, uh, we were sort of following some of Luther's life and the major instances in Luther's life and things like that. And it was, it was a great time. It really, really was a wonderful time. But we went to the Wartburg Castle. And, of course, when you, you go there, you talk about Luther hiding from Charles V and the translation of the New Testament into German and how important that was and, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, but while we were there, I took our group, and it wasn't, you weren't supposed to do this, but we got permission to do it. Uh, I took our group, and there's a video of this online, if, if, if you're interested in looking at it. It's only, it's only like five minutes long. I took our group into a, a little out-of-the-way alcove in the castle, and I talked about an Anabaptist who read Luther's New Testament. And came to the conclusion that Luther's understanding of baptism was wrong, began preaching it, was arrested down in the town. He was then brought up to the Bartford Castle and put into, I can only describe it as a deep, dark hole. In fact, the hole going down into it, which we are standing around, as we're looking down, it, it was it was it was called the terror hole because once you were lowered through it, you didn't know how far down you're going to be going. There's no windows. There's no lights down there. Um, and somehow he survived in that place for seven years. Oh, and initially they would bring 
Lutheran pastors in to preach to him through the hole at the top to get him to change his views simply on something such as baptism. He refused and eventually died down there. And all of our people were just so stunned because they're, they're, they're standing between two different worlds. Over there is the Luther who is fighting for freedom and translating the New Testament and hiding from Charles V. And over here is an Anabaptist who only a few years later is imprisoned in the same place. And Luther knows he's there and does nothing to get him out. And the people struggle because they don't understand the sacral situation that had developed the sacralism of the Middle Ages, the sacralism of the Reformers, and yes, the Reformers laid the foundation for the breaking down of the sacral system, but it existed, and any Calvinist who has ever wandered onto the internet has had the name Servetus thrown in his face yep. and has hopefully done some study to try to understand why was Servetus burned at the stake and was Calvin the one that burned him and all this type of stuff. And so, obviously, there are all sorts of understandings in history as to the relationship of church and state, going from Ignatius in 107-108, writing to all those different churches on his way to Rome to be martyred, all the way through the Middle Ages, Inquisition, everything that comes with that, the sacral system adopted by the reformers. I mean, anybody who studies Luther knows that the Luther up to 1525 and the Peasants' Revolt, very different than Luther after the Peasants' Revolt. Same situation with Zwingli. Calvin struggles with these things, reading his letters and the relationship between the cantons. All sorts of complications and traditions have been brought along and everything else. And here we are today. And I'm a good old American boy. I was raised in the 1960s, early 1970s. And we had freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could, I mean, I, I did get sent to the principal's office in 1960. Um, uh, let's see, that would have been 1969, I think. Somewhere around there, I was sent to the principal's office for passing out Jack Chick tracks on the playground. Wow. Uh, I was in fourth grade. And um, I was a really good student, and I was a good little boy. I didn't get in trouble and things like that. It was the first time I ever been sent to the principal's office. And so the only thing I needed to do when I walked in the principal's office was to walk up to his desk and hand him a Jack Chick track, too. So that's what I did. Uh, he told me I could do that as long as I didn't force anyone to take it. So even back then, there was still there was already starting to develop a little bit of, uh, I don't know, some some sort of resistance um, mm -hmm. to that kind of thing. But generally, we've had freedom, 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 freedom. And I was raised with the American flag and the Christian flag up front at the Baptist church, and that's just that's just how, how it was. And patriotism was that's part of what it means to be a Christian. What that means is passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2 have been interpreted according to the times down to the history of the church. Mm -hmm. And so you have, for example, with the King James, with, you know, we all know one of the reasons King James hated the Geneva Bible. Yes. 
he hated the Geneva Bible because of all of its notes that talked about tyrants and the limitations God places upon the authority of tyrants, which is why the word tyrant does not appear in the King James translation of the Bible, <laughs> because King James didn't want it there. Uh, there are a couple words like that that King James uh, interfered with the normal translation process, shall we say. Anyway, I'm sure you guys know this, but the division of the Bible and the chapters took place during the medieval period, and then the verses, of course, uh, came between in 1551. Uh, I've got a, believe it or not, I have a 1550 Stephanus down there, the real thing. Um, and that was the last uh, printed Greek text that didn't have verse divisions. I think chapter and verse divisions are wonderful because they help us find things so much faster, but, but they also disrupt our natural reading of paragraphs and the flow of the text. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, the very next, what we call verses, but sentences, after Peter talks about being in, sub, in, in subjection to kings and those in authority, what does he do? He quotes the, the entirety of the second table of the law, the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. I mean, directly from the Greek Septuagint. Right. And so it's obvious that the... The, uh, uh, I think he uses, uh, I'll get the point says, he, he used the, the participial form, doing good for Peter, right before he quotes from the law, is defined by what God has already said, not by what the king says or anybody else says. They are actually being judged by what is in God's law. We all are. We all will be. That's the, what was the, what was the, the message that got Paul shut down in Acts 17? And this blew me away. I don't know if I'm sure I'm sure you guys have probably preached entire sermons upon this, but I only had this strike me a few months ago. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul and this is where and and Joe, you're a you're a fellow apologist, so you, you probably understand exactly what I'm saying here. Sometimes we can get in trouble because we are I run a filter through my mind. How could someone misuse this text or scripture? And how would I be prepared to respond to it? It's just sort of something natural that, that apologists do. And so when I look at Acts chapter 17, I get to the end of Paul speaking on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. I'm focused on the fact that as soon as he mentions resurrection, mm -hmm. they shut him down. Because obviously they're dualists. Resurrection sounds stupid. Salvation is found by getting out of this physical body, not by raising this physical body. Right. Focus on all that stuff. What I didn't notice, and this this just absolutely blew me away when I when I saw this. Notice what it says in Acts seventeen thirty one, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And in translating that, I was, I was forced to recognize that I had been looking at something because I'm, I'm properly concerned about, you know, uh, uh, I've defended the resurrection of Christ against John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg and the Jesus Seminar and stuff like that. And we've gone to this text and that's all fine and dandy, but I had missed something. And here's what I had missed. What is it that he had furnished proof of to all men? When it says, having furnished proof to all men by 
away, raising him from the dead. What was God providing proof to for all men by the resurrection? And what is it? That God is going to judge the world in righteousness righteousness right. by a man that he has chosen. Yeah. It is the judgment. It is the certainty of the judgment. I had never even thought of the resurrection as one of God's specifically designed proofs of the reality of the coming judgment. But it is. We, we normally think of proofs of the resurrection, mm-hmm. not the resurrection as a proof. When we do, well, that's a proof of who Jesus was or uh, that you know his sacrifice was accepted. All those things are true. But here's a direct statement that the resurrection is a proof that God is going to judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. Now, am I being unkind to say that in much of evangelicalism, that is completely not even a part of the proclamation that we are giving to the world and haven't for decades? Or have we? And I I missed it. it. It seems to me that that has been something that is centrally important, is very important now, it hasn't been a part of what we have, yeah. what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Next. <clears throat> Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, so uh, Dr. White, thanks a lot for that. I, We should have expected a bit of a Greek study. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We didn't specifically plan for it, but we appreciate it. Um, ha- having, uh, having started with the question of so the, uh, the, uh, the historic understanding of the church's freedom, uh, in, in order for the church, the church institute, to perform the God-given functions that it's been that it has, uh, it requires a measure of freedom, a measure of freedom from interference uh, from the outside, freedom you know to operate unhindered within those God-given parameters. Uh, can you can you just give us a quick rundown historically of how did the freedom of the Christian church come about? How was it uh, protected and preserved? And how, how do we come to be, how do you come to be an heir in America of that sense of freedom to hand out Jack Chick tracts, for example? <laughs> what, uh, what was happening? Well, the irony there is Jack Chick eventually identified me as the Antichrist. So, you know, there, there, there is, you know, because of the King James only issues. So there, there are those oddities that, that we experience in our lives, but, you know, one of the saddest things that the church history does teach us is that it was a misplaced hope of the church, that the church looking to something other than what the church should have been looking to that gave up many of the rights and privileges of the church. In other words, I can imagine after the tremendous persecution that takes place between 250 and 313, that when the Council of Nicaea meets in 325, only a dozen years after the peace of the church in 313, that not only were there a lot of skeptical people, but there were probably a lot of other people going, well, here it is. We, here, here's our opportunity. Um, all, the, all the post-millennialists amongst them are like, here it is. It's, 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 it's being ushered in right now, right? And the result over time, and we see this developing in Augustine, uh, the result over time was a, uh, I, I, I hate to use the term pollution, but there was a slow diminishment of the freedom of the church 
as certain aspects of that freedom gave, became part of the, the, the authority of the state. Mm-hmm. So we all know uh, about, well, okay, I take that back. We should know about the Donatist controversy in North Africa, the schism that took place, the fact that it was result that, that the greatest divisions in the early church took place as the early church struggled to deal with the results of persecution, apostasy, and the restoration of people who came back after persecution. That was the, that was the toughest issue that the church had to face. We think of all the theological issues, that was obviously a theological issue, but that's what tore the church apart more than anything else. And in North Africa, had resulted in a schism where during Augustine's day, the Donatists, who were separated from the Catholics, uh, as they called themselves, not Roman Catholics, that's a different issue, but the Donatists, when they met, when their bishops met at one time during Augustine's life, had 700 bishops from North Africa. That's how large the Donatist schism was. And when we see that Augustine eventually gives in to allowing government authority to be used to suppress the Donatists, we know Augustine does, is not trying to start the Spanish Inquisition. But historically, that's a key step toward what becomes the Spanish Inquisition. And so it's fascinating to me, and I think it's, it's well worth our, our, our thinking about and putting ourselves in the scheme of church history, to see the steps that take place to where church authority becomes polluted when it becomes joined in an inappropriate way with the authority of the state. So, example from our own history, when Servetus is arrested by the Inquisition, the night before he is to be burned by the Inquisition, he climbs up on the top of the porta potty he's using and escapes over the fence in his night clothes and makes a beeline where? To Geneva. And is arrested in Geneva and is prosecuted by the chief of the ministers, that was his job, by the name of John Calvin. And when he is convicted for his crimes of heresy, the ministers attempted, they asked the little council for a different method of execution uh, rather than slow burning. They wanted him to either be run through the sword or, or strangled first, sort of like how Tyndale was was strangled before he was burned. Um, they were they were turned down. They they did not have the authority to do that. And so, no matter how you look at that situation, we see the inappropriateness of the connectivity between the secular authority and the religious authority. In essence altering both as to how they're how they're supposed to be able to do things now obviously that was also another situation as regards to sacralism the reformation you know the fact that you had wars coming for the next number of decades between catholics and protestants and everything else very very complicated period but the point is we would not be dealing with a michael servetus the way we they did then today why 
what has what has changed? Well, we know our situation's different. We we have we have the Constitution, of the United States, and the United States. You've, you've got your seemingly not quite as clear as our um, uh, statements there in Canada. Um, and is an understatement. So, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I said there's an understatement, but uh... <laughs> yes, yeah. Even though, to be honest with you, once you once you embrace postmodern interpretation of language. There can't be a clear statement anymore about right, anything, yeah. to be honest with you. That's just what we're facing. But anyways, uh, the the reality is that the Reformation planted the seeds for the destruction of that sacral system uh, that was a part of its own birth, and therefore we deal with that kind of, of situation very differently now. Servetus' teachings were a criminal act at that point in time. And now they're not. So, I think Joe addressed a lot of uh, the questions that come out of this uh, in the Mission of God when he's talking about the relationship, for example, of what Rush Judy says about libertarianism and how the kingdom uh, expands, and especially, <laughs> especially that one chapter on uh, radical to kingdom theology, <clears throat> which um, <laughs> I would imagine has resulted in you're not getting invited to certain <laughs> institutions of higher learning on the West Coast for some strange reason. Um, it's uncertain why that invitation <laughs> never came through. <laughs> <laughs> it, it may have ended up in your spam filter, but uh, I was, I don't know if you find this interesting, Joe, but I was listening to that uh, because basically when, when it was decided that I was going to be joining the eldership at Apologia, Jeff and Luke and Zach basically handed me the book and said, this is sort of our manifesto, so you need to read it. Um, hmm. And uh, somehow I got it in, is it in, is it in Kindle? I think it's yeah. it Kindle yes. format. Yeah, it is. Okay. And so I recorded that to MP3. And that's how I, I, I listened to it. And so uh, it's funny in my mind, the entire Radical Two Kingdom theology blast uh, was uh, listened to while climbing a very steep mountain in Flagstaff, Arizona. So that's that's how I, that's how my mind indexes these things. Uh, it's ten percent grade on on bike, and that's that's when I listen to that. So it's I'm a strange person, but uh, that's that, that's how that works. Um, anyway, what were we talking about? Uh, Moses and the bull rushes. Where'd we go with that one? <laughs> so I think we were we were we were sort of talking about and you've set some context there for us in in terms of church history where the the problems that the church had to wrestle yeah. wrestle free from of its inappropriate entwinement within the state mm. we would of course right. talk about the principle of sphere sovereignty um and and how the different spheres of life a process of differentiation through a deeper and growing understanding of the significance of the gospel and the kingdom of god differentiated those those spheres out to the point where uh, the the state has its jurisdiction and responsibility under God, as does the church, as does the family, and so on. I mean, um, from the 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 Reformation, as you say, which begins to break that old system out, there's that long process of uh, of, of of transformation. How do you see? So the the this 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 has been a long battle in that sense. It was a struggle for the church initially to in the first century, the first truly free institution in Western society that says, no, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. 
then it's inappropriate entwinement with the state and it's wrestling free from that. And now uh, that, 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 that long-standing sense of freedom that you talked about in America, which we've enjoyed in England, certainly since the glorious revolution in the latter part of the 17th century and in uh, Canada, this long tradition of the, of the freedom and independence of the church uh, and of the family, really. How do you see our current situation now sort of beginning to unfold, what's going to change? What do you see is, has already changed and what do you think is ahead in terms of change for the church and and these hard-fought hard historic freedoms through the church making, as you've said in the past, mistakes and having to wrestle free, whether it was Augustine or Calvin, from that entwinement to a place of liberty. And now, what are we going into now? What do you see now? What do you see ahead? Well, well this, is, this is where... As I said last night in preaching, I said, "Folks, this is this is getting real. Uh, this this isn't this isn't hypothetical anymore. This isn't the stuff of a of a chapter of a book. This is this is where we are. And there are, first of all, obviously, we can learn from looking back from those who've come before us. We can we can gather certain principles in dealing with, for example, how the church dealt with." Um, Stalin and the Iron Curtain and how Christians have been dealing with China and things like that. So we, we can understand that one of the key issues right now, of course, is secularism. And that's, that's, that is one thing that makes the modern situation somewhat different from the ancient situation. You, you did have the paganism of, of Rome in the sense of its inclusivistic demand. You have to include Caesar and his authority in your pantheon of gods. We, we did have that, but true radical secularism, I think is one of the most dehumanizing things that it has ever come into the human experience. And when you combine it with the power of technology, mm-hmm. this is what I've been saying to a lot of my, my brothers in the Lord, where we're, we are, facing something that that is new and that is while while the soviet union wanted to banish any meaningful uh role of faith in christ faith in god they didn't have the technology to do it they didn't have the drones they didn't have the satellites people could still meet in houses in basements out in the woods um that's not the case any longer. And I'll be honest with you, that's, that's the one thing, when, when people start asking questions about how we're going to handle this in the future, that's the one thing that I go, this is where we are going to need such wisdom from God because we are now living in a total observation context. Hmm. And we, we see the church suffering as a result in the CCP, we, we, we see uh, just less than two weeks ago, uh, the same church from which the pastor was arrested and put in prison for nine years, um, they were raided. Why were they raided? Because they had a homeschool going on. Because they, they know how vitally important that is to communicate these truths to the next generation. And... But they're always being watched constantly, everywhere they go, everything monitored. And that's where we are. That's that that combined with 
the soul-destroying battery acid of secularism. It's the only mm-hmm. way I can put it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when we, so much of the situation we look at in the past, you're dealing with at least theistic systems, even philosophical systems that still have some place for grounding meaning and reality and truth. Darwin opened the door to the abyss and our society has leapt through that door and no longer has anywhere to ground meaning, let alone a transcendent meaning to life, law, even to understand why we should have liberty or why we should even value it. Mm. I am stunned. I don't know if you guys, I am stunned at my Australian friends, my British friends, my Canadian friends, my American friends who do not seem to any longer have any passionate desire for liberty at all. Mm -hmm. We are seriously willing to just be the wards of the state. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm, I'm taken aback by how quickly and how easily this attitude has become so incredibly predominant. And so when you ask, what do you see coming? Well, I don't know if it's my Scottish heritage uh, or just what it is, but my mind tends to go to the worst before it goes to anything that might might be a little bit more uh, moderated. I can see tremendous challenges ahead. And that's why I pray, oh Lord, we need mercy. Mm-hmm. We we need we need the restraint. Your 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 hand of restraint seems to have been lifted, and if you're calling us to walk through a period of tremendous judgment, that you will use as the means of banishing the foolishness of secularism from the human race. Mm-hmm. Well, then that's where we are, and we need to be faithful where we are. Mm-hmm. Because let's be honest, when it comes to eschatology, like I said, I was raised as a good dispensational pre-millennials. I didn't, I didn't think anything else existed. Obviously, over the past number of years, I've had to be thinking through a lot of these things. And uh, I've given Joe's book away to a number of folks, and I had to warn them. <laughs> little, little warning sticker. And <laughs> Be warned, this may really step on your toes in a lot of different ways. But, you know, having taught seminary for as long as I have, one of the things I always said, for example, starting systematic theology class was, if I don't step on your toes in this class, if I don't make you uncomfortable, I'm wasting your time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you and you have wasted your money to be in this class. Mm, yep. And so um, that's what I appreciate about the book. And I warn people about it. And so obviously my eschatology is in formation at the moment. Um, but one thing I've become absolutely convinced of is First Corinthians chapter 15 lays out part of God's absolute purpose in this world. It's to subject all of Christ's mm. enemies under his feet. Mm. Amen. And if Psalm 110.1 is God's favorite Bible verse, and it must be because mm. he quotes it most More often. More than anything else. If, if that's the case, and the last enemy is death, and we've already seen enemies being subjected under the feet of Christ, then it seems that it's God's intention to continue doing that. But over the course of history, that has not been a straight line. No. 
it has not been a straight line. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we learn the most from looking back in history and mm-hmm. seeing God's judgment coming upon societies and nations that were displeasing in God's sight and why they were. Mm-hmm. And so if that's when, when people ask, well, what if, you know, the Soviet Union lasted for like 70 years, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's a lifetime. Yeah. Do you think some, do you think things could go bad for that long? I, and I'm like, yes, yes, they could. <laughs> and, and for a lot of people, if you design your eschatology based upon your observation of mm. what's going on in the short term, yep. that's destructive of faith. Yes. But if you have a, a biblical and a historical understanding, mm-hmm. and you've got the long view in mind, then mm-hmm. what becomes my passion now, and you guys are all youngins, um, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I'm, I'm the old dude in the group, and I have four grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I look at my three granddaughters and my one grandson. And I'm going to tell you guys, marriage changes you. Becoming a grandparent changes your outlook more than anything else I've experienced in life. Mm-hmm. Honestly. When your babies have babies, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you start seeing, you don't start seeing in the circle of life because that's pagan, but you, you start <laughs> to see you know, the, the reality that I want to give them that which is going to allow them to stand and to mm-hmm. serve Christ in the future. There's our challenge right now. That's what we need each other for. That's what we need Joe Boot for. That's what we need Jeff, Jeff Durbin for. That's what we need Doug Wilson for. That's what we need anybody who's addressing this. We need the wisdom to understand that let's say we're going into a very dark period with technological totalitarianism staring us in the face. Mm-hmm. What do we, what should we have been doing? Not much you can do about that. What do we need to be doing now mm-hmm. to lay the foundations to communicate the faith to those generations down the road that will see the light arising and being able to rebuild on the basis of a true understanding of humanity in light of the risen Savior. There's, that's yeah. what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Well, right, I have, uh, go ahead, right, go ahead, Ryan. I, we, we have one thing that, uh, that we're doing here, and I'm just going to... Mm-hmm. Uh, call on Nathan to make a, a quick announcement about uh, something that we're doing here at the Ezra Institute. Great. Thanks, Brian. So here at the Ezra Institute, our goal is cultural reformation in terms of the Word of God, and our mission is to train up a generation of godly cultural leaders to advance the kingdom of God in every sphere of life and society. We do this by hosting training programs here at the Ezra Institute Center for Reformational Culture And I want to tell you about one of our training programs scheduled for this summer. That's the H. Evan Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership, happening July 4th to the 17th. The Runner Academy is a two-week training program for post-secondary students and young professionals to equip you with a solid intellectual foundation and coherent real-world application of a scriptural worldview and Christian cultural philosophy. At the Runner Academy, delegates live, work, eat, pray, and study together here on our 24-acre farmstead property overlooking Lake Ontario while studying under an interdisciplinary faculty with a reputation for godliness and academic excellence, as well as insight and experience in the work of cultural transformation. 
And of course, we're particularly pleased to welcome Dr. White as a faculty member for 2021. This year's program is filling up fast, so visit ezrainstitute.ca today to learn more about the Runner Academy. Apply today and shape the future to the glory of God. Thanks, Nathan. Ryan, do you have anything else to say before we let our very good friend Dr. White go here? Because we've kept him for a while. No, what is there else? Um, I think we've covered it. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. White, we've gone gone over the time that we asked you to give to us. We really appreciate you... uh, coming on the show it's been a privilege to have you and we're uh, we're grateful for your ministry the ministry of alpha and omega and apologia thanks a lot for being with us this has been the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the ezra institute and you can check out more of our resources at ezrainstitute.ca dr white what's your uh, your website well, uh, we're at uh, aomen.org, alphamegaministries.org, and uh, apologiachurch.com. Even though, I'll be honest, you, our website, it, we don't put a lot of effort into that website. We uh, Obviously, it's our, our Facebook presence, YouTube presence, YouTube channel, things like that. We're always cranking out Apologia radio episodes and things like that. And, uh, of course, we've, we've had uh, Joe on, and uh, you all know how much... Uh, we appreciate what you guys are doing and uh, want to direct people to, uh, to your resources as well. And, and we're, we're working with, there, there's a few of us that we're trying to work together. We, we have uh, very much the same message for the world. And, and, uh, so we, we pray for you guys up there. We know that you're probably facing a little bit more direct governmental pressure than we are here yet. Um, and so, uh, be aware of the, of the fact that we know that. We're praying for you and uh, want to be uh, uh, support to you in any way that we can. Thank you, Dr. White. Well, we'll have you back. God bless you. Thanks a lot. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time